It's a blustery morning in early February 1895 in Meadville, Pennsylvania. This right here is dairy country. And like any American farming town worth its salt, Meadville's got one heck of a state fair. They had this competition, like it was the State Dairymen's Association, like an ag fair, like the annual agricultural fair. Historian Benjamin Cohen writes about the state fair in his book, Pure Adulteration. He says people came from all over for this event. It was like the Super Bowl of the Pennsylvania ag world. So it's a big deal. You know, like you bring your prize pig and your prize cow and your, uh, I don't know, maybe they have like the biggest tomato or the biggest pumpkins, you know, shit like that. Oh yeah, that good, good ag fair shit. Dairy farmers from all over Pennsylvania are rolling into town to discuss cattle care and growing the best feed. But there's one thing that's top of everyone's mind, the highly competitive butter competition. The thing is, someone with ill intentions is lurking around with aims to win big, embarrass the judges, and blow up this butter battle. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On April 4th, 1895, 128 years ago this week, news broke of a small-town butter competition gone haywire. The events that unfolded at this contest would stand in for much larger anxieties plaguing the country, around who we trust, what's safe to eat, and what's really in our food. We're turning up some big butter drama after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the butter smackdown of 1895, it's important to understand some of the forces that were at play in this turn-of-the-century moment. Before industrialization, 80% of Americans lived in rural areas. And farmers tended to grow a wide variety of crops, rather than specializing in a few. People ate foods that were grown locally, close to home. So for the most part, you knew where the veggies on your plate came from. But by the late 19th century, all that was changing. We're zooming out. We're in a grand demographic shift from an agrarian society to a more urban industrial society. That's author Benjamin Cohen again. Tons of people were flocking to cities for factory jobs. Massive industrial food processing operations started popping up from New York to Chicago. And the results? were not pretty. Factory owners started cutting corners to make more food more cheaply. Scammers dyed glucose syrup amber and sold it as honey. Meat packers routinely disguised rotten or contaminated meat. 
It's even estimated that in the mid to late 19th century, milk diluted with mystery filler killed about 8,000 children annually. All of this seriously freaked people out. Everybody got really confused about what it meant that all these foods were coming, being processed and coming from factories. And they were like, is this okay? Can we eat this? Is it really what you say it is? And one of the main things people were dealing with is what's the difference between real and fake? The issue of how to tell the difference between real and fake, pure and processed, basically how to find food that wouldn't kill you, it was on a lot of people's minds around this time. And that brings us back to that state fair. To many in Meadville, it was a celebration of food made the old-fashioned way. On February 6th, farmers started filing into the Dairyman Association State Fair. And Association President H.C. Crawford kicked off the festivities. A nation's homes are its best fortresses. It therefore becomes the duty of a nation to see that the food offered for sale is pure and wholesome that we may build up a strong and vigorous manhood. And that much-anticipated butter contest we told you about? It was the pinnacle of these values of purity and farm boy wholesomeness. And not just because butter tasted so good, but also because butter was a moneymaker. Butter is a huge piece of the agrarian economy because it's a like what we call a value-added product. People mostly had cows in large part because they fertilized fields so you could grow crops. And then there was like, you could have slaughterhouses, you could actually like eat the animal, so it's dual purpose. But you couldn't make money on it. Basically, if you weren't going to eat your cow, the best way to make money on it was dairy. So like you had to make cheese and you, you got milk and you made butter. And that's where you made your money on all those things. So you had to sell the butter to keep the farm going and to keep the whole economy working. Butter was big business, but it was also a source of pride. Local dairymen eagerly submitted their finest samples in hopes of being named the best butter in the state. The rules of the butter contest were simple. The top six butter submitted, evaluated on flavor, salt, creaminess, and color, won prizes. Dairymen spent weeks expertly churning their cow's best cream— then tirelessly kneading the butter to squeeze out as much moisture as possible. They salted it generously and swaddled it in wax paper, like a little butter baby. Most of the entries in this particular competition came from local farmers, with one exception. So there's one guy, A.J. Palm, who's the editor of the local paper. Palm was a newspaper man, an unlikely candidate in a butter-making contest. And he had a grand scheme to pull one over on the most knowledgeable butter connoisseurs in the country. The judges are this esteemed panel, like the prize-winning creamery men of the state and the the honored professor, like all these dignitaries who are like the, I I don't know what it means to be like the best butter taster, but like really respected people who are, you know, ostensibly know what they're doing. They were the judges. Ladies and gentlemen, Please rise for your judges. Butter's Supreme Court, if you will. We've got a seasoned professor of agriculture at Penn State. We've got a dairy cow breeder whose cattle won first prize at the World's Fair. And we've got a veteran butter maker. It's giving dairy royalty. But little did the judges know, 
not all of their entries were what they seemed. Ahead of the competition, our newspaper man, A.J. Palm, ordered a butter dupe. He sneaks in fake butter from Chicago. 400 miles away, northwest Pennsylvania, he gets a shipment of margarine, and he sneaks it into the competition. Gasp! Sneaking margarine into a butter competition? If Palm could pull this off, it would actually be quite the scandal. Margarine, also known as oleomargarine, or simply oleo, is an oil-based butter substitute. Think country crock, and I can't believe it's not butter. At the time, it was made from beef fat, a plentiful slaughterhouse byproduct. It was also a main player in the industrial food controversy of the day. The one that freaked people out the most, there were the most laws, there was the most consternation. The one that came up more than anything else was margarine. The public feared margarine because of its reputation as a potentially sketchy processed food. And dairy farmers... They were pretty pissed off that there was this new incursion of fake butter. Despite the public's misgivings, though, margarine was actually selling really well. That's mainly because it was cheap. Cheaper to make and cheaper to buy than the real dairy stuff. Farmers were worried. It was a power grab. Like, we can't have this fake butter. That's going to kind of screw over our ability to make any money or to sell our real butter. This is going to screw over this whole system. All of this meant that the government, now facing pressure from the public and the dairy industry, started cracking down on margarine. Some states passed laws against dyeing margarine yellow, so it didn't look too similar to butter. This meant legal margarine stayed an unappetizing, translucent white. Other states required it be dyed a Pepto-Bismol pink. Blech. The federal government also taxed margarine heavily, making it way less attractive to consumers. So A.J. Palm, the guy trying to con the butter contest, noticed the situation, and he was not happy about it. This guy, Palm, is pissed off about this. Like, why? You shouldn't have to have taxes. This is egregious. And this is why he decided to submit margarine into the esteemed Meadville butter competition. He wanted to make a point. He saw that margarine had real legs as an industry. If only the government and the dairy purists would get out of its way. He was mad that people were mad about it. He's like, what's the big deal? Like, it's cheaper. It's not so bad. Everybody, it's going to be fine. Like, chill out. So the day after the competition ended, after the cows were back in their pens and all the butter hopefuls of Pennsylvania had submitted their samples, the judges convened to deliberate. They touched, they tasted, and finally, they tallied up their scores and reached a final decision. And guess who freaking won? AJ, mother-freaking Palm, and his mother-freaking margarine. Well... He won second and third place, but still, not one, but two of the top prizes went to the newspaper editor slash margarine enthusiast, and he was elated. The judges thought his margarine was butter, great butter, prize-winning butter. To celebrate, and to rub it in the judges' faces, Palm published the news of his successful grift in his own newspaper, The Meadville Messenger. 
He's like, I tricked you. You all couldn't tell the difference. I told you there was no difference. Those judges being like, what the hell? You completely embarrassed us. To the judges' dismay, more newspapers got a hold of the story. The Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times. One reporter wrote, Recent events are likely to becloud the public mind as to whether there is any difference between oleomargarine and the best butter. And if there is, whether anybody, even the most skillful experts, can say which is one and which is the other. Reporters blatantly mocked the judges. It ought to be possible to tell oleomargarine from Crawford County butter. And of all persons, the members of the Pennsylvania State Dairymen's Association are the very ones who should be able to make the distinction with certainty. Total shade here on the State Dairymen's Association. These judges are are humiliated. But these judges weren't just going to take it lying down. With their reputation on the line, not to mention the entire butter industry, they were prepared to fight back. That's after the break. Welcome back, butter babes. Before the break, newspaper man A.J. Palm cheated the Meadville butter competition. He secretly submitted margarine instead of butter, and he won big. His con made a splash in the national press and embarrassed the Dairy Association. But the judges wouldn't go down easy. So they're like, screw this, and they take the samples of the fake butter and they send it to the state lab, which is that you know state college where Penn State is. Author Benjamin Cohen again. They sent it to him like the Wells Fargo, like a sealed sample. It was like insured. You can see them like racing across the state. Like we've got to get the sample to the, to the lab. A local official signed an affidavit ensuring the samples of Palm's margarine were untampered with. And once the samples arrived at the lab, the chemists got to work. These days, chemical analysis of our food is standard. We get calorie counts, fat content percentages. But in 1895, this was brand new stuff. By reaching out to the chemists, the judges were making use of some pretty cutting-edge technology. The fact that there is something called a state chemist, like these are all new things. These technicians would start to define that border between what's real and what's fake. Margarine samples in hand, the state chemist and his team heated up big blobs of the stuff, separating it into its constituent parts for a closer look. The analysis lasted a few nail-biting weeks before reaching a stunning conclusion. They get the results from this test, and it turns out that it was like a double cross, like the fake butter was real butter. Like, the guy who thought he was tricking them with this fake butter somehow got a shipment of real butter. Okay, gasp again. Palm, the little cheater, got cheated himself. The double-crosser got double-crossed. So the judges were vindicated. They published this pamphlet to circulate, like, we win. The pamphlet read, in huge letters, it was butter. And it reignited the press frenzy. 
On April 4th, one journalist wrote a snarky rebuttal to the attempted swindle. Such are the schemes resorted to by the oleo manufacturers to get and keep their goods before the public. The whole business is born in fraud and can only be sustained through the same infamous methods. Okay, meow. I didn't know the dairy world was so catty. So how did this happen? Who swindled the swindler? The truth is, we don't actually know. There are some theories. Maybe somebody caught wind of Palm's scheme and sent him butter samples from the very beginning. Or maybe it was the state chemist. He was actually friends with the judges. So, you know, that's suspicious. Or maybe it was just an accident. What really happened remains the great mystery of butter history. What we do know is that the lack of transparency at Meadville, the impossibility of knowing what really went on behind the scenes, was an uncanny metaphor for American food at large. It's not like that issue's gone away. Like, people still every day are going to the store and they're worried, like, is this safe? Am I really eating a good, like, the, you know, is that a genuine article? Is it an honest egg? We've kind of been in the same argument since the dawn of manufactured food. Like, for the last 140, 150 years, we're still grappling with it. When the Food and Drug Administration was created in 1906, it was supposed to be the silver bullet to Americans' food trust issues. No longer would folks wonder whether they were eating margarine disguised as butter, or glucose disguised as honey, or rotten pork disguised as good ham. But like most government initiatives, the FDA falls short. And in a lot of ways, we're still living in Meadville. My producer Jasper and I recently went to a grocery store near our office to scope out what's going on in the butter versus margarine wars today. Okay, so we're, uh, we're here in the dairy aisle and um, butter and margarine are actually grouped together. And there are truly like six fridge doors worth of different butter and margarine products. And they are like right next to each other. Um, we counted 83 different types of butter, margarine, and hybrids of the two. Right smack in the middle of the packaging is like a classic red barn with the white trim and the grain silo. And it says, country fresh taste, country crock, creamy and delicious, starts with farm-grown ingredients churned in Kansas. But then you look at the ingredients and it's water, soybean oil, palm kernel and palm oil. You know, it's interesting. Whether it's 1895 or 2023, we're still dealing with some of the same questions around food transparency. I have to say, like, if I was shopping here and I I didn't recognize any of the products, right? Like, I'm coming in totally blind and I had to just pick something, I, I would have no idea where to start. Like I would, I would. If you go to the store, go to the dairy section, and you decide, you know, which quart of milk you're going to buy, everyone's going to have a picture of a cow in pasture on it, right? And very few of those will come from a cow in pasture. This is Vermont farmer and director of the Real Organic Project, Dave Chapman. It's just a lie, but but here's the interesting thing: 
is that the marketers understand what people want. There are a lot of words marketers use to convey health and safety. Think natural, wholesome, farm fresh, pasture raised, guilt free, sustainable, plant powered, and of course, the big one organic. Even though organic is a term with a specific definition set by the government, those regulations are influenced by various outside forces partisanship, lobbying groups, general bureaucracy. In other words, when we buy organic, we don't always know what we're getting. More money is spent lobbying for food in this country, in our government, than is spent lobbying for defense. The biggest certified as organic milk producer is not organic. They have huge confinement livestock operations, you know, in places like Colorado and, and Texas. You're being misled, I'm being misled, and I will always buy certified organic because what else am I going to do? The grocery store in general is an overstimulating place for me, but yeah. This is a lot. The Great Meadville Butter Competition wrapped up 128 years ago. But the larger question at the heart of that battle, how much do we really know about the foods we're eating? That is still very relevant. For most of us who'll keep buying mass-produced foods, we might never truly know what's in them. But what we do know is that our interests aren't always being looked out for. Honestly, I would go for the the fancy country crock because there's like a nice piece of toasted bread on the packaging and I'm like, that looks pretty good. And that's like, that's probably how I would make my decision, which is a horrible way to shop for food. We're all just left standing in the dairy aisle, trying to make good decisions with bad information. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Jasper Jarecki. Next week, we look at what it's like to run a newspaper from inside the gates of the Manzanar detention camp. The free press is this kind of funny place where there's a lot of ideas being kicked around. And my mother's this young 19-year-old woman, very impressionable, and she's going around and she's recording life in Manzanar. The rest of our team are producers Olivia Briley and Ramoy Phillip. Our associate producers are Laura Newcomb and Nick Del Rose. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Kelly Prime. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger and Katherine Anderson. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to B. Wilson and her book Swindled, Joan Gusso, Marissa Morrow at Plowgate Creamery, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, and Liz Stiles. 
Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. Check out our new comment feature in the Spotify app. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. And it's true that if you taste really good food and you compare it to that addictive food that is manufactured, you do taste the goodness of it. And you go, oh yeah, this is this is wonderful. And part of the problem is that people are losing the choice of even ever tasting that food. <laughs>